Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? Today, we are talking about one of the coolest pine trees in North America, the white park pine, Pinus albicollis. This amazing pine is a cornerstone of the ecology of Western North America, especially at the high elevation areas in which it grows. But as you're going to hear, it affects everything down the mountain, including access to clean, clear, necessary water. Joining us to talk about this is Glacier National Park naturalist Andrew Smith, and he is a champion of this tree, but a champion of all things ecology in Glacier National Park. He is a wealth of knowledge, and together with his colleagues, they have put together an amazing podcast called Headwaters that you must all go check out, in which they cover whitebark pine in a much more thorough amount than we do on this episode, but this is a great introduction to the species to wet your palate and get you interested in not only why the species is important, what's threatening it, but also what is being done to ensure it is going to remain on the landscape for generations to come. I don't want to steal any of his thunder, so let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Andrew Smith. I hope you enjoy. All right, Andrew Smith, it is so great to have you on the podcast. I'm so happy we're able to make this work. So let's start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Sure. My name is Andrew Smith. I'm a ranger naturalist at Glacier National Park in Northwest Montana. And I've been a ranger here for six years. Nice. And in addition to uh, going out and, and hiking the trails and uh, teaching people about plants and animals and rocks and all that stuff. Um, I also am one of the hosts and producers of Glacier National Park's podcast, Headwaters, uh, which has been a really fun project to be a part of. And I'm just really excited to talk to you today because we did a season recently all about the whitebark pine, which is a, a pretty amazing species that lives here in Glacier National Park. Excellent. Well, so happy to have you to talk about this. It's an excellent podcast. I recommend every go, everyone go and subscribe and listen. Um, and it's nice to see the Park Service getting involved and, and making efforts to kind of communicate what's going on in different ways. And the fact that you kind of tackle things by season is a, is a cool format to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I think the Park Service has such a great brand and, um, you know, people trust the, the science and the, um, uh, the communications that we're putting out. So I, I was really excited too to to see, you know, us making more of an effort to reach out to people beyond just the people that can physically make it to the park, which is always going to be a limited number of people, and uh, you know, meet people where they are and and communicate that way. Totally, yeah. I mean, uh, myself, I haven't been out there in years, so it's it's good to kind of feel connected back to a really beautiful place. A lot going on out there. And so, speaking of that, you're in park naturalist. That's an amazing position mm -hmm. to be in. Um, but what brought you to this career path? I mean, were you always a nature nut or is it something you kind of stumbled into and then just ran with? Yeah, I have kind of a, a unique path. Um, I've always been an, an outdoors nut, but I haven't. Uh, <laughs> but I wouldn't I wasn't a naturalist growing up. I would okay. definitely say that uh, I grew up in the Seattle area and um, just, you know, loved hiking and camping and backpacking. And in college, I kept that up. I was at Middlebury College. I was a uh, guide in the outing club and like backpacking and hiking all the time. But um, academically, I was studying philosophy and <laughs> political science. Nice. And uh, 
I, you know, always with an environmental twist, um, but I wasn't a hard sciences person at all. And, um, you know, at some point I realized I needed to figure out a job after I graduated because <laughs> oh, you can't yeah. just um, stay in college studying philosophy forever, as fun as that would be. <laughs> um, and I had this moment where I was out on a ski touring trip up in Maine, and um, I can really pinpoint it to this one moment. I went out to brush my teeth one night, um, and it was a full moon, and the moonlight was just glowing in the snow, and it was so beautiful, and I thought, I need to find a career where I can have moments <laughs> like this and be outside a lot. So I got back and started applying to the National Park Service. And at first, I didn't really garner much interest from the big Western parks. So I started out my career at a small historic site in southeast Kansas called Fort Scott National Historic Site. Okay. It's about uh, 14 acres. We had a, a quarter acre of tall grass prairie, which was pretty cool. But it was <laughs> nice. uh, mostly just some historic buildings. Um, but from that experience, I kind of you know, learned how the Park Service works, what kinds of experience would be required, and I was able to get a job at Glacier. And that's really where I became a naturalist because I don't think you could anyone could really spend a lot of time in Glacier National Park <laughs> and, and not start to get curious about um, the plants and animals here and uh, just spent so much time hiking. And I really wanted to learn what the, the plants were that I was seeing. Um, so I started learning plant ID and got really into botany and um, became involved with the Montana Native Plant Society and and so being a naturalist has become you know, a big part of my life now. And um, it's something I, I always loved the outdoors, but it's really evolved in the way that I've been able to appreciate it um, like scientifically and to learn about what's going on in the world around me. Wow, that's fantastic and, and great insights to anyone looking to shape their career around a similar trajectory. Like there is nuances to government work, especially, but getting into the park system and working your way through to find the one that fits you best. But, you know, I think the other great thing, too, is having people like you on staff to draw attention to what's going on. You know, people go there for vistas. They go there for hiking and, and see the beauty of the place. But I know a lot of people, a lot of friends that just want to crush miles and, and get to that big viewscape, which is great. You know, I, I do that myself, but to have someone to slow them down, show them what's going on and, and just kind of draw attention to why this place is so beautiful. I think it, it, it takes that a very meaningful experience and just kicks it up a few notches. Yeah, no, it's funny you should say that because that's sort of how I got into plant um, ID and botany <laughs> is I was uh, a crusher and going for big peaks and stuff. And I would often leave all my friends in the dust and then I would get to the top and just be sitting there like waiting for an hour and I'm like <laughs> I need to find something to do and I start keying out alpine plants and um just fell in love um but it is it's really it's really nice to take the time to slow down and I I really believe that when people do slow down and they learn a little bit more it just gives them that extra connection and that extra motivation to be stewards of this place and it I think it really meaningfully contributes to um, conservation because we we do need a lot of advocates for public land and um, for conservation. So I I really appreciate when people who are visiting the park or on vacation do take a little bit of time to the ranger naturalist and and learn about the plants and because um, it it makes a difference. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, what way to make a, an amazing place just all the better by by just really kind of diving in and, and looking at all levels, all scales of life there. But, 
you know, the other side of it too is, is like I said, we're taking, you guys are taking this extra step. You have this amazing podcast and, and you're picking a variety of topics to cover, but what made you center on the white bark pine? Why we're talking today, Pinus albicollis, this amazing species. I mean, I know why you would pick it, but what, what was kind of the motivation yeah. for, for taking a deep dive on this species? Sure. Well, it's a really interesting species to talk about because um, I, I say there's two sides to it. One is it's really important ecologically. You know, we consider it a keystone species in the subalpine here. A lot of other plants and animals and even human communities depend on it uh, because it plays a really important ecological role. But it's also a species that is severely threatened mm. and especially severely threatened by um, human actions, by anthropogenically um, introduced fungus, the white pine blister rust. And so it it puts us in this situation as you know managers of a national park where uh, we've got to do something if we want this tree to continue to be here. And we're also the reason that it's it's in trouble. So hmm. um, really felt like an interesting interesting story because there's this onus that everyone feels to to preserve this tree and and to preserve everything that that depends on it um, and so a really big effort has been made to conserve it not just here in glacier national park but across the west where it grows um, so we wanted to tell the story of of this tree and the people who are doing some amazing work to try to save it oh, that's fantastic yeah it's it's timely <laughs> in a big way but you know, it was one of those species that when I first met it, I was in the Rockies and it, it, you know, I was, oh, cool. That's a different looking pine took some pictures, moved on. And it was early days of botany for me. So I didn't think much about it. And then I went back, keyed it out and was like, oh, I wish I would have spent a little more time in the presence of this species. And like you said, it's not doing so hot, but the big sort of foundation here is that ecological importance. And so when we start talking about you know, especially in alpine habitats, these these keystone species in, in an area where everything is kind of living on thin margins. What is it about the white bark pine that kind of makes it so important compared to a lot of its botanical neighbors? Yeah, there's a couple things. One is something you just mentioned, that the shape of it. Like you'll notice it right away, especially if you're in glacier in the subalpine. We really have two tree species here. So <laughs> it's uh, like you said, the the white bark pine, Pinus um, albicollis, um, but also the subalpine fir. Mm. Um, and the fir trees have quite a narrow crown. They're like narrowly conical, like a kind of small Christmas tree, whereas uh, Pinus albicollis has broad uh, crown, really creates a lot of shade. What it's doing is displaying its cones for its uh, really important um, bird species that it co-evolved with, the Clark's Nutcracker. But the side effect of that is that um, if Pinus albicollis is replaced with Aves lasiocarpa, the subalpine fir, there's a lot less shade in the subalpine. Hmm. And when there's less shade, snow melts faster, and it really affects the hydrology of the area. And water availability is a big issue. When you look at uh, rare plant species that are on the edge of their their habitat on in the alpine and the subalpine they're mostly threatened to uh, to a lack of water and, wow. and especially to a lack of water um, at the end of the summer so huh. we have you know in glacier national park is named after glaciers obviously a glacier has enough snow and ice mass 
that it will melt all the way through August and keep the fields at the end of it uh, moist. So you have really cool mm. like endemic species like papaver pygmium that grow right at the edges of these glaciers where it stays wet all summer, even though it's hot and windy. But when we lose these trees and those snow fields and glaciers melt faster, um, it affects the alpine hydrology, but also the lower hydrology. So we get bigger uh, flooding events in the spring, more sediment in the springs. Um, so it, it really has big effects on everything below it and, and how much water it gets and how clean that water is by slowing down the melt and making it last through the year. Wow. There's another really big factor though, which is um, the seeds are, the pine nuts are highly nutritious. Um, and so they are an important food source for a lot of things up there. Um, you know, most famously that Clark's nutcracker that I mentioned, which mm -hmm. has a really important uh, mutualistic relationship with the white bark pine. These, uh, the white bark pine cones are a little unique. Um, you know, they are uh, displayed up and they don't open on their own. They don't fall mm. off the branches. They're really co-evolved with Clark's nutcrackers to make those cones as available for the birds as possible. Uh, and Clark's nutcrackers will hammer open those cones and they will start caching seeds. They're the only bird in North America with a sublingual pouch. So it's a little pouch underneath their tongue. Huh. And in that pouch, they could hold over a hundred pine seeds. So what? they'll have, you'll see them after they've been eating in their pouches, all uh, like swollen. And you can see all the little dots where all the <laughs> seeds are holding. Um, and they just bury them. They, they bury in the peak summer, they can bury 500 an hour Dang. and they're caching them for a winter food source. So they'll bury tens of thousands of these seeds. And they remember where almost all of them are, but that small percentage of them that they forget about are how um, white bark pine is hmm. planted. It's basically the only way that it uh, reproduces is through uh, these Clark's nutcracker caches. Wow. Um, but so the it's an important food source for uh, the Clark's nutcrackers, but it's also an important food source for bears and uh, for squirrels, uh, all sorts of animals that live up there. And we heard throughout the course of the show, some pretty amazing stories about the, the lengths bears will go to get these <laughs> seeds because they are so nutritious that um, you know, there's even stories of, of bears spurning salmon to eat white bark wow. pine seeds. Huh. I mean, that's pine nuts are pretty delicious. I know it's not the same species, but I can kind of yeah. empathize in a way like yeah, I could, <laughs> could go for some of this. That's pretty remarkable. And the, the, the Clark's nutcracker is related to blue jays, right? I mean, this is a pretty smart bird on top of it all. Yeah. They're corvids. They have an extremely good memory and um, yeah, they have this just amazing connection with white bark pine. Like, so they um, like to cache, they have a very visual memory. So they'll cache seeds in places with um, kind of a, some visible feature on the ground. So usually hmm. that's like a burnt cleared area and there's like a stump or a log that's fallen, and that helps the bird remember where it is. That's exactly where white bark pine likes to grow. So hmm. during the show, a couple times we got to go out and plant white bark pine seedlings. And when you have these, you're looking for a spot that would be easy for a Clark's nutcracker to remember, like right along a stump <laughs> or a that. fallen log or something. 
<laughs> That's amazing. And and I'm really happy you kind of led with the microclimate or just the climate aspect of it all, because we think of plants and, and, and those really thinking about it, I should say. The caveat there is you have to be tuned into this. But, you know, we hear about the food, the ecological elements of like connecting to other forms of life, which are vital. But in, a, in an area that is defined sort of, again, on the margins of limitations, physical abiotic limitations, you know, the structure of these trees, the shade they provide, all of that feeds into what makes up the ecosystem up there. Yeah. And when you have uh, an alpine or subalpine ecosystem, it's not just that ecosystem it's affecting because everything below receives the water from the mountaintops. Um, (laughs) So it's not like it's the ecological systems below but also like human communities and um, like everyone really who lives around here should care about these trees right yeah because it's not like you're necessarily digging wells where you're at i mean a lot of stuff is just coming off the mountains from snowmelt or or glacial melt in that way yeah absolutely it's um you know they they call the the mountains here the water towers of the continent and uh it's true like there's so much fresh water that that comes from the Rocky Mountains. Nice. And so if people are out looking for this tree and they're not finding nutcrackers to track down and, <laughs> and, and track, you know, follow their steps, but uh, how many needles are in each fascicle? Is there an easy way to, other than mm-hmm. the structure compared to its neighbors, um, what are some of the key identifying features for people to kind of clue in on? Yeah, that's a good question. So whitebark pine is a five needle pine. So if you're in the uh, Rockies, um, around here and, and you're at a higher elevation two five needled pines you'd find which is the limber pine and the white bark pine hmm. they're they're quite hard to distinguish i will say um but uh the only other kind of common wild five needled pine around here is the western white pine and and that one is a much lower elevation species longer more slender needles so you won't uh, mix them up, but the white bark pine, you want to look for that whitish gray bark. Hmm. That is what the, the name comes from. And then uh, the five needles and the cones coming up from the branches that are sealed shut. The, the cones don't ever naturally open on a white bark pine tree. Fascinating. Yeah, that in and of itself is really cool because most of the pines I think of just dangling. So that's that. Yeah, that's, it's more like a fur, yeah. like the way it displays its cones. And I love, yeah, again, it's just this wonderful sort of thing that you, you notice. It's pretty easy to notice. And then you ask that question, why? Well, the answers connect you back to a much bigger ecosystem perspective there. And so with that in mind, I mean, as you mentioned, there's some anthropogenic issues that we mm-hmm. have wrought upon the landscape and this tree itself. That means this the species that is, as we hinted at, extremely important ecologically from a climate perspective, a water availability perspective, uh, that if this were to wink out uh, as bad news bears, no pun intended, <laughs> um, what what's going on there? You mentioned some rust, but I'm sure there's other factors that mix in as well. Mm-hmm. There's four main factors that we consider to be the biggest threats facing white bark pine. So one of those is uh, the white pine blister rust, which is an introduced fungal infection. Um, the mountain pine beetle is a big threat. Mm. And we can, um, I think we should talk more about the mountain pine beetle. It has sort of an interesting role where yeah. it's, uh, it's a native species, but it's uh, it doesn't historically live at the same elevation as white bark pine. So yeah. although from the same regions, white bark pine did not really evolve defenses to it because there was an altitudinal 
distinction between the, the mm. range of the species. Um, the third is climate change, um, which is, you know, you could probably say about every species yeah, right. on earth at this point, um, <laughs> to some degree. And then the fourth is a fire regime. Mm. So whitebark pine is a species that needs fire to regenerate, but it's also very easily killed by fire. So hmm. both fire suppression and intense fires from, um, that are fueled by climate change can, can damage it either way. It really needs kind of a happy medium Dang. there. Um, and those are all issues that are connected and they're all issues that are anthropogenic to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the beetles, the least obviously anthropogenic, but, um, like I was saying that it, it doesn't historically live at, um, the elevation that the white bark pine does because it's too cold up there. Uh. And so as we, it gets warmer, those beetles are able to move up in elevation. So it is, um, quite tied to climate change in that regard. Damn. Yeah. And I've, firsthand seeing how devastating the mountain pine beetle can be in stands that like you said historically never had to have that evolutionary advantage over it uh in terms of defenses but let's back up to the rust uh you mentioned it's invasive do we know where it came from or how it got here we do yeah so it uh, originated in asia and was transported to europe just uh sort of naturally or through commerce Mm -hmm. um but it's not a big issue there. Um, it eventually comes to the U.S. in sort of a strange way. Um, it comes on uh, nursery trees of uh, Pinus strobus, the oh, no. eastern white pine, which is actually native to North America. But uh, at the time, and this is late 1800s, the, there was not a big nursery industry in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So they're actually bringing these American trees over to Europe growing them in nurseries there and then transporting them back across the ocean. And that's how it's, it's introduced. So there are five needle pines across the country. It starts on the East coast uh, from these nursery trees. And the, the crazy thing about it, um, and we talk about this in the show is that people already knew about white pine blister rust and they just transported these trees anyways. So it, it was a totally avoidable situation. Um, but it comes across the ocean. Um, a few years later, it's also introduced in a similar incident um, into the Pacific Northwest. So it, it's now encroaching on the country from both directions. And white pine blister rust is kind of an interesting disease because it has two obligate hosts. So it it has to live part of its life cycle on a five-needled pine, a white pine. But it also needs another host. Um, and for a long time, it was thought that the only other host they could live on was ribes plants. Um, so those are currants and Weird. gooseberries. Huh. Yeah. And if you go hiking uh, <laughs> probably anywhere in the U.S., you'll notice that there are a lot of ribes plants oh, yeah. across the continent. Um, so there was plenty of opportunities for it to spread that way. And one of the strangest parts of this whole story, I think, is the efforts to stop blister rust by eradicating ribes Um, so there there was an era of management um, that it ran for decades like the 1930s all the way until about the 1960s where the forest service had a a blister rust control program and the way they controlled blister rust was by trying to eradicate the alternate host um, the ribes plants and they hired crews of young men around the country um, 
just laid out grids and started pulling plants. The blister rust control program in Glacier National Park alone resulted in the pulling of millions of ribes plants. Um, and these are this is a native species that belongs here, but people had decided that it was less important than the pines. Mm. And part of the reason for this is that the eastern white pine is a really important commercial species. So wow. there was a big economic interest in preserving white pines can probably imagine there weren't a ton of people out there advocating for the ribes plants and <laughs> right. uh, pumping them up, yeah. except in Europe. Um, you know, in Europe, ribes are a much bigger deal. Hmm. Ribena is a really popular beverage that's made from blackcurrant berries. Hmm. Um, I, I even found out in researching the show. So in the U.S., purple Skittles are grape flavored, but in U.K. Skittles, the purple Skittle is blackcurrant flavored. Huh. So. Weird. It's a cultural thing <laughs> yeah. in Europe that just doesn't exist here where no one would, would really be worried about yeah. the eradication of, of ribes. But it didn't work at all. Yeah, that um, doesn't surprise me. <laughs> they propagate super well. Like, There's no way you could get rid of them. And we also learned there were at least two other alternate hosts, mm. um, Pedicularis, um, which oh, is uh, lousewort plants, and uh, paintbrush as well. So huh. there, there was no way we were going to eliminate all of the alternate hosts. And uh, blister rust control was eventually given up in favor of, of other methods yeah. of white pine conservation. That's wild. What a weird and interesting life cycle. It's unfortunate. Um, yeah, just to go from gymnosperms to angiosperms and such weirdly different ones at that. But, yeah, you know, I, the the white pine overplanting is it's 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 real in this country. Um, you know, even out east where white pine pine strobus is is truly a native component of the Florida the flora, it is still to overplanted in my opinion. And, and you see the results of just what that does to the ecology. But then to have this host and to know about it, oh man, that puts a pit in my stomach even more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's really unfortunate and you know this was right after, you know, the American chestnut situation. So everyone knew kind of what the stakes were yeah. if we let a uh, uh, the species or this uh disease cross the ocean and and they they failed a second time. Dang. And so what what are their new methods to even, you know, do you treat individuals? Do you spray? I mean, what are the new, more modern ways of dealing with this blister rust? Yeah. So when blister rust infects a tree, it enters through the tips of the needles and it moves in towards the bowl. Uh, so you'll see when a tree is newly infected that uh, it starts flagging. The branch that's infected turns all red and brown. Mm. And it if that infection hasn't reached the stem yet, you can cut the branch off and the tree will be fine. But the reality is it's going to keep getting infected in all its other branches. And so you're really just buying time, but you haven't solved the, the situation. The right. real answer, the only answer that we found is that it just so happens that a small percentage of white pine of white bark pine is naturally immune to huh. blister rust. Like it, it maybe has some genetic memory of a similar species that infected it in the, the distant past. And so these trees um, that have this genetic uh, immunity can pass it on to their offspring. So what we do here in Glacier is uh, we replant 
stands of white bark pine that have been killed by blister rust with seedlings um, that we have harvested from known immune trees. Oh. So we have a, a bunch of plus trees around the park that um, are they suspected or known to be immune to white pine blister rust. And in the summer, we have vegetation crews here. And I got to join them last summer when we were doing the show. It was it was really fun, really amazing work they do. Um, and they go up in the spring uh, and the early summer and they cage off the cones of the plus trees, about half the cones on the plus trees. And this stops the Clark's Nutcrackers from eating them because um, <laughs> as much as we need the Clark's yeah. Nutcrackers, we don't want them to become predators on the few trees whose offspring have a good chance to survive. We'd right. rather them eat the the seeds from those trees um, that aren't immune. And, and while they may be alive for now, their offspring have not much chance of survival. Then we let the cones mature on the tree, come back in the fall and collect those cones. And then we send them down uh, to the Forest Service uh, nursery in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And those seeds are grown for two years in a nursery uh, before they're brought back to Glacier. And we uh, replant seeds from the park you know, back into the areas that they came from. Wow, that is quite the effort but it is exciting to know that there is some natural resistance and that to me is always the most exciting when oh there is a genetic component to this let's work with what we got yeah and it's sort of you know miraculous because you know you look at like the american chestnut again it no american chestnut trees appear to be immune to it i mean we don't know exactly because so many of them were chopped down right. uh, to preserve the the wood before they were infected but we got a bit lucky. There's there was a real chance that there are no trees that that were not susceptible to this disease. Dang. Well, I'm glad there's some planting efforts underway. I mean, for a lot of reasons, but also targeting and, and growing local ecotypes that might be resistant. So sorry, Clark's nutcrackers. You can uh <laughs> like you said, move on to the less resistant ones and we're gonna make sure you have forests for the future. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, it's all about that long-term sustainability. But we do need the Clarks because right, if right. if we lose them, the white bark pine like will not come back. Yeah. It it doesn't have any other way of spreading its seeds. So um, it is important. But the Clarks nutcrackers are not as dependent on the pines as the other way around. They can eat seeds from other trees as well. They'll they'll move to ponderosa pines if there's not enough white bark and. That's so they're, they're not going to go extinct, but we don't want them to you know, shift their migration patterns too much or anything right. like that. Yeah, you figure an intelligent bird like that, there's got to be some like history there or something. So let's keep yeah. them on the landscape. And they're trying to figure that out. Like the scientist we went out with for the show was uh, trying to figure out where exactly these Clark's nutcrackers go the rest of the year when they're not in Glacier. And so he um, it was trapping them and, and putting little... Um, transmitter backpacks on them so we can get some data on where they spend the rest of the year and nice and yeah just you know you have to understand all the pieces yeah totally and that's where those collaborations really come into play but what about the beetle i mean it is a native beetle like we said climate change is causing it to get to higher elevations surviving at higher elevations and it's not just hitting the white bark pine uh, I've seen entire mountainsides turn brown from this. What can be done about that, if anything? Yeah. 
So we're lucky, at least here in Glacier, the beetle is not a big issue quite up at our latitude and elevation. It's still a little too cold here, and we really don't have um, any beetle outbreaks right now. But you go just like a little further south to Yellowstone, mm. and they have crazy beetle outbreaks. So it's we're not far from the edge of where they can survive. Um, beetles naturally go in these kind of boom-bust cycles where they... Um, start in infesting trees and their population grows and grows with all this uh, wood available and then they overeat they kill the whole stand and the population crashes again so we we would expect that um, that will sort of limit their damage like limit in a very like poor way because they've already killed all the trees but they they don't have a great mechanism for stopping themselves from from over consuming Hmm. But there is one thing that we do um, to try to stop the beetles from coming, which is using verbenone, which is a synthetic beetle pheromone. And it's basically a, a signal to the beetle that the tree is already occupied. Ew. And we do take our um, plus trees and the ones surrounding them and staple little packets of verbenone <laughs> onto them so that if beetles are in the area, they'll think that that tree has already been infested and uh, move on to another one. And uh, you know, we, we don't know quite how well it works up here because we don't actually have a lot of beetles to test it on, but right. uh, we're, do- we're doing it just as a preventative measure at this point to uh, you know, not leave any stone unturned. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you just got to go with it and hope it- <laughs> something happens. But I love that this like, little synthetic no vacancy signs <laughs> you could just put up and eh, if it works that's awesome yeah they're tiny little things too like they're it, it looks like a little um like tea bag or something that's stapled <laughs> to the tree so if, uh, we try to kind of hide them so they're not facing the trail but if you're out hiking in the park and you see a like a little plastic pouch uh stapled to a tree you don't need to pull it off it's not vandalism yeah. that's uh, protecting the tree from beetles it's a very weird form of vandalism if it was yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so this other issue we're dealing with here is as you mentioned this combination of of climate change which is affecting all of these aspects but also fire and fire is uh, it's a heavy subject especially if you live in the western west of north america uh it's it's a tough subject because it's really on our minds these days and um, you know, it's it's affecting more than just people. It's affecting the entire ecosystem. And so where does fire start to play in with the white bark pine? And and you mentioned it is sort of adaptive, but there's a sweet spot there. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So white bark pine needs fire for propagation, but mature white bark pines don't really like fire that much. Hmm. Uh, so it's sort of a in a weird middle spot where uh, it it needs areas to burn to spread, but it doesn't really like having fire right where it lives. So, and Clark's nutcrackers will carry the seeds pretty far. So, hmm. kind of the ideal situation, if from the white bark's perspective, and not this is not necessarily like the best for the whole ecosystem, <laughs> sure. but like if the if there's a you know a mountain with a bunch of white barks, the neighboring mountain burns, and that's places that the white bark can start, or that the Clark's nutcracker can start caching those seeds and growing uh, new white barks. Um, Ah. So we need some, we need a a mix. We need some patches of the landscape that are burned and some that are older. Um, And white bark, like it's a very slow, it's a pine. It it (laughs) needs 
decades to reach sexual maturity. It's, oh, wow. It won't um, start producing cones until it's at least 50 and really 70 Dang. is is when it starts to uh, become reach its its peak of of cone crop. So it it does need places where that interval is is long and where it can grow for decades. Um, but to expand and to propagate, it needs um, some burned areas too. So it's sort of a, an interesting, it's a tough challenge for the park's fire managers to, yeah. to, to deal with that. And, and they know where the plus trees are, the ones that have those special cones, and that's going to be a consideration in, in firefighting. But um, there's a lot of considerations. So um, yeah. you, know, you can't always defend the things you want to as i think uh, you know anyone who lives in the west knows at this point right right and and i mean just that conundrum of how long it takes to get a new crop out of seedlings i mean that's more than just a career's worth of decades <laughs> to to get yeah. the next generation established to a point where they can start ushering in a new generation that was a huge thing that everyone we talked to who was working on the conservation brought up that they're doing this and in their lifetimes, they won't really know if it worked or not. Um, they're working on this project so that uh, not just their children, or their grandchildren, but maybe their great grandchildren can <laughs> like enjoy great white bark forests again. Um, this is just not a tree that exists on, on human timescales. It's doing its own thing for sure. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's both tragic and fascinating reminders of that and how quickly we can undo things. And so, you know, one of the things about fire is, is, is that intensity. And I guess it all comes down to like how much of that fuel load is there. If you've got mm -hmm. a lot of pine beetles in an area, that's an extra amount of fuel load and, and yeah. things that are, if it's droughts because of climate change, that's increasing the chances. So it's, there's a lot of factors that go into play when you start thinking of fire regimes and how we even get back to something quote unquote natural for that system. It's, it's not as simple. Well, just get out there and light a match. Yeah. And you know, the intensity, like you were saying, it's, it can really alter the landscape when you have an intense fire, um, in Waterton Lakes national park, which is, um, just over the border in Canada from glacier, Waterton and glacier make a an international peace park where contiguous yeah. and we do some kind of management actions together. Nice. In 2017, they had a giant fire um, called the Kenow fire. And it, it, this one fire burned about half the forest in the entire park. And it took out like a decade's worth of white bark seedlings that they had been planting. And, you know, you talk to the managers up there and, you know, they're just, I have to show up to work and start over again. Like you can't give up because yeah, the tree doesn't have a chance if we give up, but it's it's discouraging yeah. for sure to to have all your work undone like that. But yeah. that's that's the reality of the environment that that we're working with. And if you can't accept that, um, you know, this isn't the place for you to be. Probably right. right. I mean, it is that is true dedication, admirable uh, to to a degree that even yeah, you just sit back and go. Ooh, I thought I had a bad day at work, but <laughs> yeah. And that was something like we saw over and over again when talking with people who work with white bark pine is they, they absolutely love this tree and they're so committed to it. Like half the people working on it are retired, but they still work full time basically in, <laughs> in white bark pine conservation because they just can't give it up. Like yeah. it's, it's a species that inspires really strong feelings in people and there's there's probably a few reasons for that, but I think if you if you get the chance to spend time with white bark, um, 
it's up like it's subalpine it's right around tree line it's you just are up in the mountains you have the most beautiful views when you're sitting under the shade of a, a white bark pine tree and um, it's a special experience and i think that's part of why people are so committed to saving it yeah totally uh, you get it like you said when you're in it you get it and whether or not you choose to that's your own decision but you look at these people and go i salute you <laughs> yeah yeah but it, it's also a nice reminder of like the landscape level. I mean, like we've talked about throughout this entire conversation is just how much of this ecosystem depends on this tree. And then you start thinking like glacier is huge, but it is finite, right? Your boundary ends somewhere. And we have to start thinking about like, okay, if a fire happens here, what is on that next mountainside? Or if this pine bark beetle hits us here, what's on the northern end of its range? And it, it really kind of brings up this idea of like, this communication side of things tells people that, hey, we can control what's within our borders, but we have to start thinking of neighboring properties and all of that to to really get people thinking about the stewardship of this ecosystem. Yeah, and it it is you're right. Glacier is a million acres, Dang. but it is <laughs> it is just a fraction of the crown of the continent ecosystem. So this white bark pine restoration effort really is. Uh, cooperative. We worked with a lot of forest service personnel. We worked with tribal foresters. We worked with uh, private landowners. Uh, one episode, we went up to the Whitefish Mountain Resort, which is the big ski resort near Glacier Park. Mm. And um, it, the White Bark Pine Ecosystem Foundation, which is an amazing organization, has criteria for a ski resort to become a, a certified White Bark Pine friendly ski resort. And Whitefish Mountain was the first resort in the country to, to get wow. that certification. And so we went up there and planted trees um, up in the ski area. So it's it's national parks, but it has to go so far beyond that because a million acres is a lot. But like Montana's a big state and, <laughs> and this is a big country and we need a lot, a lot of people involved. Well, that's really encouraging to hear that. And, and again, I think it's you know, you hear the Forest Service, you hear the National Park System or any, you name it, entity, and you think, oh, well, they're just taking care of what they need to take care of and they're checking their own to-do lists off and that's about as good as anyone can expect. But yeah, when you start to hear about the efforts that go into just moving beyond the immediate border that you operate in, that is really encouraging. You know, a lot of these issues are huge. I mean, it's going to take governments and really multiple countries to solve climate change, but to think that people are putting in the effort now to make sure that when things, if things get turn around a little bit, <laughs> people kind of get their heads out, so to speak. Uh, you know, there's, there's at least opportunities in place for these species to have a chance at true recovery. Yeah. And, and no one knows if these white bark restoration efforts are going to work because the time scale is just too long, but we we're giving it the best possible chance with the the science and the understanding that we have today, which I, I think is all you can do. Yeah. Um, but it it's tough because you know you look back at the history, the blister rust control. Like there have been a lot of missteps along the way and things that that probably made the problem worse. Um, but you can't. I don't think you can let that stop you from from doing the best you can with the the science that you have available to you. Totally. I mean, errors are data, right? It is a chance yeah. to look and go, oops, that was bad and and make better improvements. And and that's really, I think, the point we have to look at is like the past you can't change, but you can certainly learn from it. 
Mm -hmm. And we tried to learn from other conservation efforts as well. We talked to um, you know, fisheries biologists here because fish stocking in lakes and national parks really destroyed a lot of the aquatic ecosystems mm. and and looked at ways that they had tried to restore those uh, fisheries um, because it, it is kind of a, a similar phenomenon that we're dealing with where we put something where it doesn't belong and now we have to figure out how to get it out. Um, and uh, so there's there's lessons to be learned all over the place. Totally. And so besides listening to Headwaters, this wonderful yeah. podcast you all have, the average listener that may not be even uh, within a stone's throw of Montana, let alone able to visit the park, is there ways the average listener can get involved or at least have a stake and, and help you guys out? Uh, in, in protecting this this amazing species. Yeah, uh, I think the number one thing is to check out the, the White Bark Pine Ecosystem Foundation. It's an amazing organization that is uh, was put together by a lot of the top scientists studying white bark pine when they realized that it was in trouble. And um, they are organizing the effort to create a national and regional recovery plans. They're advocating for white bark pine to be listed under the endangered species act which will unlock a lot of resources for us they're putting together uh, conferences so scientists uh, can meet with managers and get uh, best practice information so um, a really great organization i would encourage people to check them out um, as well as um, the glacier national park conservancy who is the nonprofit who uh, sponsored our podcast and they um, make a lot of the work happen in Glacier National Park. They fund a lot of the revegetation crews and those replanting efforts that are happening uh, right here. So there's, um, yeah, some great work happening nationally and locally. That's awesome. That, uh, really encouraging to hear that. I mean, again, you think if it's just government funding, but it's other people having a stake in this and 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 putting their money where their mouth is. <laughs> yeah, and really, really passionate, really smart people. So it, it is, the white bark pine is in good hands. It's got a lot of problems, yeah. um, a lot of really sticky, tough problems. But when you meet the, the people working on it, um, yeah, you couldn't really ask for a better team to be uh, in charge. I love it, yeah. Just do the best we can, right? And so if people want to get their hands on uh, Headwaters podcast, start listening to it, I mean, is it typical it's on every major podcatcher how do you guys set up your shows where what's a good way to start that kind of thing yeah it's on any platform you get your podcasts um, and then we also have some more information about the episodes on our website it's go.nps.gov slash headwaters uh, yeah check out we've got two seasons there right now including uh, season two that we've been talking all about about white bark pine and uh, season three is in the works so if you get hooked um there's going to be more. Excellent. Yeah. And I mean, a much more thorough look at this problem. Go check out Headwaters podcast. But Andrew, thank you for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you for taking the time to put together this podcast. And thank you for all of the effort you put in to not only help the White Bark Prime, but help people connect to this amazing landscape and the species that make it so special. Uh, keep it up, man. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. It's nice talking to you. Of course. Well, hang in there, stay healthy and uh, go White Bark Pine. Go White Park Pine. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. <sighs> Amazing stuff. Really important work. And I am so thankful for Andrew for taking the time to talk with us about this very important tree and all of the threats to it, as well as what is being done to protect it. 
It's not easy working with trees, especially ones with timescales like this that we don't readily operate in, but I am so thankful for everyone that continues to put in the work to protect this tree. Of course, all of the relevant links can be found in the show notes for this episode, but I just want to give yet another shout out to their amazing podcast, Headwaters. Go check it out. As they hinted, season three is just around the corner. So if you enjoy what you've heard in seasons one and two, make sure to hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. Of course, if you're enjoying shows like In Defense of Plants, consider supporting them. You can do that over at patreon.com slash plants. Your financial contributions each month really help make this show possible. For instance, I have a huge shout out to the latest producer on this podcast, Earl. Earl signed up at the producer credit level, so they're doing the max possible to ensure this show has a future. So thank you, Earl. And thank you to all of my patrons. I couldn't be doing this without you. You can also support the show by picking up a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch or stickers, and all of those links can be found at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. Just scroll around. They're in every show note that I put up there. But that is it for me this week. Thank you all for listening. Until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.